We're going to be looking at uh, Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 32, through chapter 5, verse 11, and it is on page 912. <clears throat> Again, let me uh, say how thankful I am to be with y'all uh, this morning. It really is a pleasure. Um, our churches, Lookout Mountain Press and, uh, and Canada Water, really do have a, a pretty significant history together, and it wasn't too long ago that Kruger and Stefani were over here, uh, well, excuse me, or I was, you were with us, and we were with Pete and Ashley doing a wedding on Lookout Mountain, so it's fun to be with y'all this morning, and then my friend Molly, who is from Lookout Mountain, happened to be flying over yesterday, and she came to, to be with us today, too, so it's fun to have our churches linked together. Um, we're, we're looking at Acts. Lookout Mountain Prez is a church that loves church planning. We're an old church uh, for America anyway. We're about 130 years old. Uh, but we're recovering a heart for church planning and have planted uh, three churches in the last 15 years or so that have uh, come out of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian and really helped us to regain a vision for that. But often when we plant churches, we hear people say, we, want, we don't want to be like an old stodgy Lookout Mountain Presbyterian church. We want to be a New Testament church. We want to be a church like the time of Acts. So Lookout, we're studying Acts right now, and some of the things we're seeing is like, are we sure that's what we want to be like uh, as we look at it? There's some parts of it that are so attractive and some parts that are downright scary, and we're going to look at both of those this morning. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, let, me, uh, let me pray one more time, and then I'll, I'll read the word. Lord, uh, we do pray for the work of your Spirit in our hearts, that you uh, would work as you have worked for generation upon generation to feed your people, to, to grow us in grace, to infuse more of your grace into our lives, that through that miracle of grace, we might be able to live lives that are uh, lived for your glory and that are uh, bold and winsome for your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here's the setting. Uh, uh, the setting in, in Acts 4 is Peter and John are arrested for preaching about Jesus in the temple, and they're threatened um, uh, and, and commanded not to speak or teach at all again in the name of Jesus uh, by people that had the power to take Jesus' life, so they certainly have the power to take Peter and John out. Uh, and then they're released, and they go back uh, and, and report to the early church what's happened, and then they, they break out into prayer uh, and towards the end of their prayer is where we pick up. And I'm going to pick up in verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to everyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Time out. I'm reading out of the NIV, so if some of y'all are going, wait, this is different. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't realize we are using the ESV, so we'll keep going. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. 
With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you receive for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are also at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Glad you asked me to come preach now, aren't you? I can imagine that after you hear a passage like that, you probably have some questions, maybe some big questions. Maybe you're wondering uh, why Ananias and Sapphira had to die just because they told a lie. What's that supposed to teach us? Can, what are we supposed to learn from that? Or maybe what caught your attention was that all the believers, you know, that some would periodically sell land and houses and just bring the money and, and give all the proceeds to the, the apostles with no restrictions and say, just distribute it as you see fit, as you see best. Or maybe you're wondering from this passage what God is really like. Is this really a loving God who has judgments like this? Those are good questions, and I hope that as we go through the passage this morning, you'll get answers to those questions. But also hope this will happen. I hope we'll understand that when we hit these hard passages, uh, the questions that we have reveal a lot about what we think about God. They reveal a lot about our own hearts, the condition of our hearts, and what we believe about God. Before we dive into the passage, though, I want to tell you the story of a young man who uh, lived over a hundred years ago. His name was William Borden, uh, and he made choices in life, uh, significant choices also, that many of his family and friends were absolutely bewildered by. Uh, they just didn't understand, even angered by. Uh, Borden was born into a, a very wealthy family in Chicago in the late 1800s. Uh, he was uh, very well off. He entered Yale University in 1905. And while he was at Yale, he excelled at everything he did. He excelled at academics and sports and all the relational uh, parts of college. And by the time he graduated, uh, he had lots of lucrative job offers. You know, he was already a millionaire. He was born with all this money. He already had all these great job offers, uh, plus the option of going into the family business. And much to his father's disappointment, he turned them all down. And he turned them down because... He took uh, what we call today, I don't know if y'all call it the same thing, a gap year after college, when you, or excuse me, after high school, or after college, when you don't know what you want to do. He took a gap year, and before he entered Yale, he traveled around the world. That's what you do in a gap year, apparently. Uh, 
Uh, and while he was traveling around the world, he went to all these different countries and he saw all these different people groups who had no knowledge whatsoever of Jesus or of the gospel. And in his heart were really planted the seeds to be a missionary. So that stayed with him all through college. And when he got back uh, after college, instead of taking a great job, he entered seminary. He went to Princeton Seminary and got his seminary degree. And then he was accepted by China Inland Mission uh, to go to the 3 million-plus Chinese Muslims in Gansu province who had not a single person living among them at the time that could tell them about Jesus. So in December of 1912, I'm going somewhere with this too, I promise. In December of 1912, he sailed for Cairo. He sailed for Egypt, and he had two goals. He was going to study Arabic, and he was going to learn more about Islam. And yet three months into his time there, he contracted spinal meningitis and died at the age of 25, never having seen China, never having gotten to China. He left his fortune uh, which was significant to Christian organizations that went on to do a lot of great things. And today he's buried in the American Seminary. Seminary. There's a little slip there that might be pretty accurate sometimes. The American Cemetery in Cairo. And this is the whole point of the story. This is what's written on his tombstone. Apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Well, we could say the same about the early church here in Acts. Apart from Christ, there's no explanation for people selling land and houses and giving all the proceeds away, coming to the disciples or to the apostles and just saying, here it is, distribute it however you see fit. Apart from Christ, apart from a genuinely spirit-filled life, there's no explanation for that. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at this passage with three different questions and answers. Uh, and the first question is this, what marks the lives of spirit-filled people? What marks the lives of spirit-filled people? Um, we're going to look at the first few verses here about the believers sharing all their possessions. It says uh, uh, they, they were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of his possessions was his own. They shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord, and much grace was upon them. There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And then it tells the story of Joseph, who sold a field and did just that, brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So the context of this, remember when I told you the context was they were, they were um, praying for boldness and sharing the gospel after they'd been threatened. And verse 31 says, after they, were, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So what marks the lives of spirit-filled people? Boldness in word and in deed. Boldness in word and in deed. Extraordinary boldness. Luke says the apostles boldly testified about the resurrection of Jesus. And while they're doing that, here's the other part. The community of believers is boldly embodying the reality of Jesus and his resurrection in their hearts and in their lives and in their relationships. And here's what Luke wants us to see. He wants us to see that the early church was not just afraid of the 
or excuse me, was not only not afraid of the risks of speaking boldly for Christ, those risks were great, they also weren't afraid of the risk of living boldly for Christ, of adopting a lifestyle of radical generosity. I was thinking about generosity a lot and this whole idea of selling land and houses and radical generosity. When we have, when we have a lack of that, it's not really caused... Uh, but what we would say in America, stinginess. Do y'all use that word? Just stinginess. It's not caused by stinginess. It's really caused by fearfulness. Fearfulness. Because what Luke is showing us is the more we know about God, about the character of God, the more we're assured of his unconditional love for us, assured of his sovereignty over all of our lives, assured of his provision for all of our needs, not necessarily our wants, the more we're assured of these things, the more we'll live radically generous lives, the more we'll speak boldly and then we'll live boldly. I love the uh, Bible studies that Redeemer Church in New York City puts out. They have a Bible study on the book of Acts, a small group study, and they're talking about this early church and, and not fearing the risks of living this way, and it lists some of the risks uh, for them in the first century that are so applicable to us. So listen to three of the risks that they list uh, to living radically generous lives. Here's risk number one, the risk of a lack of personal financial cushion for our own emergencies. We all, we all feel that, don't we? Secondly, the, li- the risk the, of the possibility of our gifts being used improperly and ineffectively. We worry about that. And thirdly, the risk of less disposable income for our own comforts and pleasures. All three of those were true for them, and they are true for us. They were willing to take those risks. They were willing to do that. And this is what the the Bible study said that really shocked me. He said, uh, I don't know who wrote it, but he said, if our lives are not characterized by a new and surprisingly bold generosity, surprisingly even to us that we're that generous, then it's safe to say that the assuring work of the Holy Spirit is not very strong in us, and that's not the Holy Spirit's fault. We're hanging on too tight. What enabled the church to live this way? They, they lived radically generous lives because they were filled with this Spirit, and they trusted the God who had dealt with them with radical generosity. They trusted their radically generous God who had given His own Son Like, if you have not withheld your son, then you're not going to withhold anything from me that I really need. So they could live radically generous lives and take those risks and be okay. The question is, are we willing to live that way? Do we trust him that much? What marks the lives of spirit-filled people? Boldness in words, speaking boldly and winsomely about Christ, but also boldness in life, living radically generous lives with our time, with our possessions, with grace with forgiveness of those who have wounded us, even wounded us purposefully. Living radically generous lives should mark our lives, spirit-filled people. But second, here's the second question. What were the real sins of Ananias and Sapphira? Is this going on behind me? Yeah. High tech. We don't even have that kind of tech on Lookout Mountain. What were the real sins of Ananias and Sapphira? And the first one, well, let's look at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 5. And, and again, um, you know, these headings, do, do the ESVs have little headings at the beginning of these sections? 
Yeah, the NIV does too. The headings, in some senses, are very helpful to find our way around. But, you know, Luke didn't write Acts with those headings or those verses. So he doesn't mean us to see this in isolation, like chapter 5 is in isolation from chapter 4. He wants us to see it together. So uh, chapter 5, verse 1 says, A man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to men, but to God. So here's the setting. Ananias and Sapphira had probably noticed uh, something's going on here with Barnabas, right? Uh, Barnabas is gaining this reputation for being a sacrificial giver, uh, a, a reputation that they didn't have, and they wanted that respect and that admiration that Barnabas had. So Luke is setting up these two things, saying outwardly these two acts look very much the same, but inwardly they're very different. They're very different. Barnabas was giving out of thanksgiving to God. Barnabas was giving out of a concern for the people of God, but not so for Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, the word that, that's used here, uh, the English word, they kept back, that doesn't really do the word justice. Uh, that, that word sounds kind of more neutral, but uh, it's actually a negative word. It implies secrecy. It implies deception. You know, think kind of misappropriation of funds, right? They had kept back some. They probably thought, I wish people looked at us the way they're looking at Barnabas and praised us the way they praised Barnabas. Look at all the attention he's getting for just selling a piece of land and giving the proceeds uh, to the apostles. You know, we could do that. They were probably talking to themselves. And maybe when it started, maybe they intended to, to give it all. They weren't thinking maybe of holding something back and trying to deceive anything or deceive anyone, but... What Luke is showing us is that somewhere along the line, something changed, and it became just a show, just a, a ruse. Not a, not a miscalculation in their checkbook, but a purposefully premeditated deception. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be a, a sacrificial giver. That's a great thing. The, the problem that came was all of a sudden they wanted to give so that they could gain. You see it? They, they, they wanted to be able to give in a way that they might gain recognition, not just out of thankfulness to God and a desire to take care of God's people, but so that they might gain some recognition. They wanted to be recognized as sacrificial givers without having to give sacrificially. Maybe they thought, we'll just keep a little bit of it for ourselves. No one will ever know. The point is they were dis, uh, deliberately uh, deceiving others and lying to God. That's what Luke is saying there. Verse 4, I love what Peter says in verse 4, withholding some of the money for themselves was not in itself a sin. That's not a problem. Believers weren't commanded to sell their property, their houses and lands. They weren't commanded to do that. They weren't commanded to give all the proceeds to the church. The sin here was lying, was publicly pretending to have given it all when they knew in fact that they weren't. Does that make sense? They were purposely, uh, secretively holding it back while acting like they gave it all. And that sin is the outward manifestation of a sin that we're going to look more deeply at in a minute, the sin of hypocrisy, really, 
with a desire for, for spiritual status. I love the way one commentator put it. Uh, they were flaunting a spiritual beauty that they did not have. Flaunting a spiritual beauty they did not have. And Peter's saying, it's all unnecessary. Peter's like, it was yours to do whatever you wanted. You were free to do whatever you wanted with it, but you chose to be deceitful. C.S. Lewis, uh, in Mere Christianity, writes about choices. This is what he says about choices. He says, every time you and I make choices, we're turning that central part of us, the part that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. And listen to what he says. As taking, and taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you're slowly turning that central thing either into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that's in harmony with God and other creatures and with itself, or one that's at a state of war with God and with other creatures and itself. So whether we're a follower of Jesus or not, Lewis is saying, what kind of choices are we making? That's what, that's what Luke is saying here too. What kind of choices are we making these days? Are we uh, feigning? Are we pretending to have a deeper spiritual commitment than we actually do just so people will think well of us? Are we seeking to create the impression that, that we're people of prayer when in fact we know we really aren't? Are we... Uh, seeking to create the reputation that we're generous people. When uh, I love this phrase, when we're so tight, we squeak when we walk. <laughs> and we're seeking to encourage others maybe to a deeper devotion with God. All the while, we know we are eaten up with sin, you know, whether it's materialism or greed or lust or, or anger. Ananias and Sapphira's sin it was this, they were well satisfied with the outward appearance of spiritual integrity without the inward reality. I'll say it again, although it's over my head, isn't it? God, can't get used to that. Y'all can just zone me out and just watch that and be fine. They were well satisfied with the outward appearance of spiritual integrity without the inward reality. And you know, if we think about it, if we're honest, we all have a tendency to do that same thing. And God cares about the inward reality. That's what we know from the pages of Scripture. The outward uh, manifestation of that will take care of itself if it's real inside. So what marks the lives of spirit-filled people? What were the real sins of Ananias and Sapphira? And thirdly, and our last question, why was God's judgment so swift and so severe? Well, let's look at his judgment there again in, in verse uh, 5 through 11. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Now, what an opportunity for her to stop right there and repent, right? to say, no, it really isn't. But she replied, yes, that is the price. And Peter said, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. 
and great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Why was God's judgment so swift and so severe? Well, there's two answers to that. The first one is this, because God hates hypocrisy in his church. He hates hypocrisy in his church. Now, we need to define hypocrisy because in the States, I don't know if people say this over here, but sometimes in the States, someone will say, you know, I don't want to go to church because it's just full of a bunch of hypocrites. And the response that's supposed to be humorous is, that's okay, we got room for one more, come join us. But hypocrisy, if you look it up in Webster's Dictionary, it defines it this way. It's the act of playing a part on a stage of pretending to be what one is not. Okay, of pretending to be what one is not. So there's a huge difference between one who's pretending to be something what they're not, and on the other hand, one who really does love God but struggles with sin. Struggles with sin and fails and repents and asks forgiveness from God and forgiveness for the one, uh, the other ones whom they've sinned against and, and strives again by God's grace to live a good life. There's a huge difference in those two things. God hates hypocrisy in his church of pretending to be what one is not, not the one who struggles and sins and repents and seeks to be restored. And remember, this is the disturbing part. There's, there's uh, no reason to think that Ananias and Sapphira are not part of the church and actually believers. These are not Roman pagans out there. God hates when we pretend to be something that we know in our hearts we're not when we insult him, as it were, uh, with our insincere devotion. And that the, begs the question, why is this such a big deal to God? Why is it happening this way in the early church? And the answer is really this, because it horribly distorts, distorts the witness of the church. Why is it such a big deal? It horribly distorts the witness of the church. G.K. Chesterton, whom I quote often, who is one of y'all's, right? born right here, Chesterton, in, born in Kingsington, uh, right here in London. He said this, uh, this is pretty convicting. He said, often the greatest argument against the truth of Christianity is the lives of Christians. Ouch. You're not going to invite me back, are you? <laughs> often the greatest argument against the truth of Christianity is the lives of Christians. And it just shouldn't be that way. In the States, we have a, um, uh, a coach that many of us uh, know his name in the States. His name was John Wooden, and he was the UCLA basketball coach, the University of California, Los Angeles basketball coach for many years, strong believer, phenomenal reputation as a coach and a winning coach. And this is what he said to his players. You just wonder if this could be, say, could, if this could be said by coaches today. He said, I want you to be more concerned with your character than your reputation. Because your character is what you really are, while your reputation is merely what others think you are. The truest test of one's character is what he does when no one's watching. Ananias and Sapphira thought no one's watching, right? No one will know. And they were wrong. Robert Redford, y'all know the name Robert Redford? Uh, he's a famous American Academy Award-winning American actor and director, uh, Robert Redford was walking through a hotel lobby one day out west, and, and when he walked into the lobby, there was a lady sitting there who thought she recognized him, and he's a big star in the States, and she followed him as he went to the elevator, and with great excitement as he went in the elevator, she was looking at him, and she said, are you the real Robert Redford? 
And as the elevator doors were closing, he said, only when I'm alone. It's a great answer. The real Robert Redford, only when I'm alone, not when I'm out in public, not when I'm around people. It begs the question, who are we when we're alone? Are we like Ananias and Sapphira pretending in public that we are something we know good and well we're not when we're in private? God's concerned about his people, not just in public, but in private. He doesn't like hypocrisy in his church, and that's why he dealt with it so swiftly and severely, because the witness of the church is at stake, and their actions are reflecting their view of who God is. If you think about it, this has been on my mind for the last week or so, the first recorded deaths in the church. The first recorded deaths were not from outward persecution of the Romans. They're not from the persecution of the Jewish religious establishment that had just killed Jesus. The first recorded deaths in the church are directly the result of God's judgment, directly caused by God. That's kind of scary. When you and I, when we read passages like this, I mean, I have to admit, all the other pastors last weekend were out of town, uh, and, and I drew this passage. This is what I preached Sunday at Lookout. And when you draw the passage and you look at it and you go, oh, golly, i got to preach that one, you know, it's very revealing of our hearts. When we look at a passage like this and we think, wow, this is a little bit harsh, it's very revealing. Dennis Johnson is a Westminster Seminary professor who just retired and moved into our presbytery uh, in the Chattanooga area, and I was reading his commentary, and there's one sentence that really struck me. He said this, if we're shocked by what God does here, then we've already fallen into sin. We've already fallen into sin because we fail to appreciate the holy character of God. I think he's right. When we read passages like that and we're shocked, we've forgotten that he's a holy God. That's the second reason God dealt with it so swiftly. He wants us, as his people, saved by his grace, he wants us to have a holy fear and reverence for him. He wants us to recognize that he's altogether holy and we are not. Hypocrisy has crept into the church. God deals with it swiftly. And then twice in this passage, we read these words, and great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. I bet it did. Again, let's just define fear, though. Webster's, back to Webster's, has two definitions for fear. One is this, an unpleasant, often strong emotion caused by the expectation or awareness of danger. Now, we all we understand that. And the second one, actually, in the dictionary is a profound reverence or awe of God. Profound reverence or awe. And now we want to go say, oh, we're talking about the second one. But I think the second one and the first one are related. If you ask Isaiah, remember Isaiah in chapter 6 when he encountered the holiness of God on the throne? Isaiah says, woe to me. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah would say it's both. It's a profound reverence or awe from God, yes, but it's also an awareness of his danger in the presence of a holy God. Ananias and Sapphira, what Luke is showing us is they had no proper fear of God. They lied to God and purposely deceived his church, and God's action here is meant to impress on the early church the holiness of God and the seriousness of sin, and hence our need for Christ. Donald Gray Barnhouse, 
was a pastor at 10th Presbyterian. Imagine having 10 Presbyterian churches, 10th Presbyterian church in Philadelphia. And I love what he, he talked about, uh, people always saying they want to return to the New Testament church. We want to be like the church in Acts. And he would look at passages like this and go, really? This is what he said. He said, if God acted in the same way today that he did in the fifth chapter of Acts, you'd have to have a morgue in the basement of every church and a mortician on the pastoral staff. And then when he preached it, he paused and he says, the truth is we wouldn't have a pastoral staff. God will have taken us out first. But he intends for us to have a proper fear, a proper reverence and awe for him. He is holy, and we know in and of ourselves we're not. We live in a day where we're rediscovering the wonders of grace. And, and uh, this past spring, I was cleaning out my books. My bookshelf at work has just gotten way too many books on it, and I cleaned out about half of the books that I knew I would never read again. And I have a section, a big old section on grace, on all these popular Christian writers who are writing about grace uh, putting the Amazing back into grace is one of the books. Uh, and I have actually a much smaller section on the holiness of God. We were laughing about that last night. I got this huge book by A.W. Pink on the holiness of God, and I've read about half of it. And I was thinking about that, this rediscovery of the wonder of grace. It, it, it truly is amazing to me that, that people like you and me can be reconciled to a holy God through Jesus that we can be declared right in God's eyes by trusting in Jesus, by not, you know, like when you showed Exodus or a little bit earlier, not, God didn't say, I'm going to give you these Ten Commandments, and you keep them, and then we'll talk about getting you out of slavery. God said, you're free, you're out of slavery, now live like this, live free. That we could be justified by grace alone through faith alone. And, and it made me wonder, because when you look at the statistics in America, and, and it may be very similar here, uh, the statistics of how the church lives and how the world lives are just not that different. Is it possible we're preaching too much grace? That's the question that popped in my head. And the answer, my quick answer is no. But is it possible that we're responding inappropriately to God's grace? And I think the answer is absolutely. And the bottom line, I think, is the more we see of God's holiness, the more we see Him reveal who He is in His Word, the more we understand that, the greater our reverence for him will be, the greater our awe for him will be, and the more we'll desire to live not just speaking boldly and winsomely, but living lives that way. He wants us to rejoice. He wants us to respond by seeking to live genuinely uh, spirit-filled lives. And, you know, when, when you read what happened here, can you imagine what the church was like when word of Ananias and Sapphira got out? Can you imagine how seriously people got about pursuing the Lord honestly and openly and, and living lives that were the same in public that they were in private? I need to wrap up. That's, that's really, I think, the secret of the New Testament church uh, that, that you and I long for. The Holy Spirit of the living God indwells and empowers people just like you and just like me to live lives like this, to live lives that radically live out the message of the gospel, to do so boldly and winsomely in word and in deed. And when they did it, in the, and when, the, when the church was new, it changed the world. It changed their lives and it changed the world. So what about us? What about you and me? Are we well satisfied with the outward appearance of, of spiritual life and spiritual integrity when the reality is it's not there on the inside? Are we 
really seeking to respond rightly to the grace of God that, that Paul says has been lavished on us in Christ? Or are we content with a, a cheap counterfeit? Here's the great news. I want to make sure I leave you with the good news. Here's the great news. Christ took the swift and severe punishment, the judgment of God. He took it for all of us who would trust in him and yet fail over and over again. Christ took his judgment so that you and I might be filled with the Spirit and live lives like, being, like are being described here. And my prayer for us for Lookout Mountain and for Canada Water, my prayer is that we wouldn't settle for the outward appearance of something, but we would deeply desire in our hearts to be different, to be changed, to have his grace infused into our lives, that we would live lives that glorify him and testify to the watching world that the gospel is true. And maybe, just maybe, it can be said of us what's said of William Borden. Apart from Christ, there's no explanation for lives like that. You know, when we live on our faith in the world that you, that you and I live in today, a lot of people are going to say, I totally disagree with the doctrines that they hold to. I totally disagree with what they say they believe, but, but there's something about the way they're living out their lives. There's something about that that's unexplainable apart from the reality of this man named Jesus who died on a cross and was raised from the dead and intercedes for them. Maybe there's something to it. Let's pray together. Father, we want to live lives like that. We want to live lives that are filled by the Spirit, that are boldly speaking the gospel when you give us those opportunities, boldly and winsomely doing so. We want to live lives of radical generosity with our time and with our possessions, and Lord, even with things like forgiveness with extending grace and mercy to those who don't deserve it, just like you've done with us. We know that can only happen if your Spirit fills us, and that's what we pray for, Lord, that even as we gather here to worship you, to start our week, that you would fill us with your Spirit and send us out into the world that we might live for your glory and testify to the reality that Jesus has been raised from the dead and intercedes for us even now as we gather. Work in our hearts to that end, we ask in his name. Amen.